anything. So Costco is where I shop. I'll have the 2015 cargo shorts modeled soon as well. It's where I shop. All right. We're in Matthew chapter 21, going straight through the book, verse by verse, and we will be done with the bulk of it at the end of July, and then um, do a, a little short series in August, and probably be in Genesis in the fall. Now, we're in chapter 21 today, and so uh, it's going to be a lot. You're going to, um, it's, it's a, a lot. So I'm going to just be uh, firing at you like a fire hose, so just hold on to your hats and try to keep up. So Matthew chapter 21. Verse 33 to the end of the chapter, I will read it to you. It should be on the screen. Reading from the ESV. It says this, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is God's Word. And I'll pray so I won't mess it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are the one who has come down to us and spoken to us and what you have for us and what you have done for us is not a mystery. Pray today you'll move me out of the way. The Holy Spirit, you'll speak the words you need to speak, whether they be words of conviction or words of comfort. Whatever they are, Father, I pray you will lead us to the cross, which is why we're here, to celebrate what you have done through your Son. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Here we go. So Matthew's Gospel, this this text is... Um, it's key in the book of Matthew because Matthew's Gospel is largely an apologetic to Jews to prove that Jesus is the promised Jewish Messiah. And so the Gospel began with a genealogy of Jesus presenting Him as the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Jesus is Jewish. He was born in a Jewish town, raised in a Jewish suburb, worshiping in a Jewish synagogue, and as he began his ministry around the age of 30-ish, he reads from a Jewish text and calls Jewish men to follow him as he ministers to Jewish people for approximately three years. Yet the Gospel of John says this in chapter 1, verse 11, that he came to his own, that being Jesus, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive Him, who believe in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is a key passage. And it's interesting that Matthew records what the Pharisees are thinking. Like he knows. But he does. The Jewish leaders here knew the message that Jesus taught, and that God was teaching historically, but they failed to recognize God's messengers. In fact, they had become so devoted to the house of God that they had ignored and rejected the builder of the house when He showed up. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus was counted as more worthy and worthy of more glory than Moses 
just as much as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And ironically, Jesus sits in the house of God, the temple of God, teaching about this very thing in chapters 21 to 23. And without apology, he unleashes these very bold words of condemnation in the presence of all of Israel's religious leaders. The chief priests are there listening. The scribes are there. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. And every time someone challenges Jesus' authority, He speaks even more authoritatively. But always graciously. And He often, when He's encountering them, speaks in parables as He does here. And so through a series of parables that are all really connected, talking about the same thing, Jesus reveals God's future tangible, real rejection of a people who have already rejected Him. It will come to pass in 30-ish years when the temple is literally destroyed. Now parables are really simple stories, but they're not simplistic. They often have very rich meaning. And they usually and often reveal something about the Kingdom of God. And there are those who understand and those who do not. And in the Bible, not meaning us who understand, but those in the Bible, particularly these disciples, understand Jesus' parables, not because they're smarter or wiser, because Jesus, by grace, teaches them this is what this means. The understanding of God's Word, the receiving of God's Word, is always a gift. And yet, there are those who do not understand, those, particularly these Jewish leaders, and that is a direct result of God's judgment. He is judging through this parable. So it's a simple parable. I want to tell you the story so you understand what's going on. Jesus lays it out very clearly. A master plants a vineyard in a chunk of land that he owns. And we can assume he does this to not only represent his kingdom, but to grow his kingdom and to reflect, obviously, his greatness. It's going to make him wealth and other things. And this master continues. He constructs a fence around the vineyard, probably of stones of some kind. And that's to protect the vines from small animals and other things that might get into the vines. And then he digs a wine press in the center of the vineyard, and that is to eventually enjoy the fruit that comes from this vineyard. And then he builds a tower, which is very common, in the middle of the vineyard. And that is a tower that is also for protection, partially, of Uh, being able to be high enough to see if any thieves or any other uh, threats are coming, but it's also a place of shelter for those who actually work on the field. And then lastly, it says the master leases it out to tenants. Makes a contract with the tenants. And those tenants were to work the field. And they were responsible to cultivate and to produce labor or fruit that they would then pay back or give in part to the owner. And the master leaves and lives in a different country. He is not right there. He is certainly present in spirit, so to speak, but he is not there. And this parable would have been received by the Jews as a very common story. This is is how economically and agriculturally they work. Most of the land in and around Jerusalem uh, was actually owned at this point by foreign landowners. And the landowners would hire tenants to work their land and they would live on the land and off the land and they would cultivate the vineyard for the owner. And communication from the landowner was limited. But they had a contract and the contract was very specific. And it would say, you do this, I will do this. And throughout the years of cultivation, the landowner would provide everything that was necessary. He would provide whatever tools were needed, whatever seeds and anything that was needed to make sure that the new vineyard would grow. And the vineyard would take approximately four-ish years for it to develop enough to actually produce fruit. So it wouldn't produce fruit immediately, but eventually it would come to maturity. And after four or five years, the landowners would literally send their representatives and they are coming for payment. And typically that payment was could be 25% upwards to 50% of what had been produced. So half of what they are producing and making would be taken by the owner of the field. That was the agreement. 
So when the season of fruit had arrived in Jesus' story, the master sent his servants to get the fruit. And when those servants arrived, these tenants beat them, killed them, stoned them. And at this point, if it was you, what would you do? You would probably unleash the law, and the master certainly had the authority and all the necessary power to kick them off the land, to have them tried in a court of law, and to have them even most likely executed. But the master doesn't do that in the story. He sends more servants. In fact, it makes a point to say he sends more servants than he did the first time. And they too are killed. The master again could have dispossessed them, could have had them tried, could have had them executed, but he doesn't. Which for us should seem unusual, should seem weird. This isn't like they said, no, we're not going to pay you, go back home. It's like, oh, hi, we're going to kill you. And so the reports the master is getting is not like, sorry, they didn't produce fruits, or they're not willing to pay, it's they're dead. They killed every guy you sent. And he says, you know what? I'm going to send my son. Maybe they're mistaking the servants, perhaps, for thieves. I don't know what the reason might be, but they're going to respect my son. My son will come wearing my robes with my entourage. They know who my son is. He will represent me, and they will respect my son. So the son shows up. And the tenants perhaps think to themselves, well, that's his son. Maybe the landowner's dead. If we kill the son, we'll get it all. We will inherit the land that we've been living on for the last five years, which legally they could. If they killed the son and there was no heir, then they would be able to make what was you know, a squatter's claim on what was abandoned land. So they're thinking, yes! It's all us! Now, this story obviously has much more meaning. Matthew himself says the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived that Jesus was speaking about them. Through this parable, Jesus is describing the experience of the nation of Israel and the people of Israel who perpetually and progressively rejected God's authority in their lives. I don't know how much you know about the Old Testament, but the parable echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah almost identically. Jesus often quotes the book of Isaiah, quoted the book of Isaiah when he began his ministry, throughout his ministry, and here. And it has an uncanny resemblance to this parable. So Jesus perhaps has this in mind. Isaiah chapter 5 sounds exactly the same. The prophet says this, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Here's the song. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And he built a watchtower in the midst of it. And he hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? What more could I have done? I did everything for you. I provided everything. I protected everything. You should have produced. What happened? The truth is, God had done everything that was necessary for Israel. If you think about Israel's history a little bit, it's important for this text. First and foremost, God had planted Israel. Israel is the vineyard. Very clearly. In love, God had set apart His people for His possession 
the book of Deuteronomy says that wasn't because they were better or bigger or awesomer than any other people. It was simply because God said, I'm going to choose to love you. And so we did. And He set, us, set them apart and planted them. By grace, He redeemed them from slavery. By grace, He chose them to represent Him. And through them, He planned to bless the world. And then God set boundaries for Israel. He put a fence around Israel. God's will for His people was never a mystery. He laid out boundaries of what the relationship would be like in the law. Like a parent that that fences their own yard, God desired for His children to fully enjoy everything He had given them. And He said, but don't go outside the fence. That wasn't mean, that was loving. On the other side of the fence are busy roads or dangerous woods or whatever, but this is the fence. Stay inside, enjoy, play, do everything you want. It's very clear. He fenced them in. And then God provided Israel with means to live. Like the master who dug a wine press in the vineyard, He graciously blessed His children by placing them in a land flowing with milk and honey. In the ancient Near East, there was a real scarcity of water. So often wine was more like a necessity rather than a luxury at first. It came to symbolize sustenance and life. Right? He gave everything necessary for life in this place. And wine later became part of feasts, part of festivals. And wine was, was a symbol of blessing and a, a, simple, a symbol of joy. And they protected Israel from its enemies with its watchtower. More than once in the Old Testament, God talks about a watchtower. Keep an eye and watching for the enemies. Watchtower literally was this small shelter in the middle of the field. And it was a warning to thieves, but also a lookout for thieves. It was protection for those who lived there. And more times than we can count, God sheltered His people from incredible storms, and He guarded His Israel from their enemies even when they lived in the midst of them. He cared for them. He protected them. And then lastly, God made a covenant with Israel, right? Not with any other people. Just as the tenants had received a contract to work the field, so God's people enjoyed a covenant contractual agreement with the Lord. And the covenant was very clear. Obey and be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. If you obey what I've laid out, things will go well. You will prosper. You will have success. God was loving to plant and God's people were responsible to cultivate the land and to live as a holy people. And they had every benefit possible. They were in many ways without excuse. And in doing the work that God had called them to do, the farming, if you will, they would enjoy the fruit of their labor, but they would also make the name of their master great. Both of those things were happening. In fact, as they made the vineyard and cultivated and made the name of their master greater, they themselves enjoyed the experience. God's people, the nation of Israel, were called to represent and to reflect and to reveal God to the world. To display we are a different people who serve the one true God. They were to farm, if you will, for God. Cultivate the world as Adam and Eve had been called to do. Produce fruits by serving Him. Living and depending on Him and with Him as He dwelled in their midst and sacrificing for Him. That was what they were charged to do. But like the Master, God lived off in a faraway country. He wasn't right there talking to them, though in many ways He was. But He sent messengers. We call them prophets in the Old Testament. Lots of books of the Bible are named after these prophets. What do these prophets do? Well, prophets would go and they would represent the Master, God. What would they tell them? 
Well, they were to remind people of, number one, the grace of the Master. More times than we can count. Do you remember being redeemed from slavery? Do you remember who you were? And they would remind them, this is the God who saved you. The God who planted you. And then, they would teach, the prophets would, reteach the people His words. They would say, you are called to fulfill the covenant agreement that has been made. We call them to the contract, just as the master servants would show up and say, "All right, remember what you were supposed to do. We did this. You did this." But Israel hated every prophet. It's not popular to be a prophet in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, prophets were hated. We often admire those who have the courage to speak the truth, not realizing that they're the ones that get hated and hurt the most. Most likely, that is why many of us lack the courage to speak the truth, even if we speak it in love. Because we know that the reactions of the people are often rejection. And that's what happened to nearly every prophet that came to Israel, reminding them of the Master and of His covenant, they rejected or killed every messenger that came. In preaching his one and only sermon, Stephen, in the book of Acts, just before he's stoned, he lets loose a beautiful sermon about the story of God and the history of Israel. And near the end of it, he says this to them in Acts chapter 7, verse 51. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? Can you name one that your fathers didn't do this to? God's people in the very beginning challenged Moses, his own brother and sister. They said, who put you in charge, Moses? The reluctant leader who never wanted to do it in the first place. God's people threatened Elijah, a man who had called down fire and slaughtered the prophets of Baal. Right after that, the queen, Jezebel, said, I want that man dead. What does he do? goes and hides in a cave. God's people attempted more than once to murder Jeremiah, a very unpopular prophet. They successfully stoned the prophet Zechariah as he stood before the temple calling them to repent. And John the Baptist, who was beheaded for calling out an unlawful and ungodly marriage to the glory of God. Every single messenger, stoned, killed, rejected. And even though God, like the Master, would be just in destroying everyone, He sent Messenger after messenger after messenger to warn the people. Asking them, return to me. Return to me. And me? I'm just another messenger. It's not popular to be a mailman. People don't like the news. But I pray that you receive the good news that the messengers eventually pointed to. God has proven Himself long-suffering in His love. God is ever patient, slow to anger, merciful, gracious, ready to forgive. We must understand, and I especially speak to those of you who do not know Jesus, Men do not reject God for a lack of knowledge. And men do not reject God for a lack of opportunity. And men do not reject God for a lack of love. On the contrary, I believe men reject the love of God because they are defiant, rebellious lovers of themselves. That's what men do. This is no more evident than the rejection of God's 
most loving act. He could not be more loving. How much does God love? He sends His one and only Son. Can you fathom that? And He sends His Son, unlike the story of the Master, knowing He's going to die. And the Son goes willingly ready to die. But He's rejected. In the parable, the men know He's the Son. And I told you, they kill Him because they believe that if they do, they'll become the owners of the vineyard. Masters of their lives. We will own it all. It'll be for us and our glory. That should echo and remind you of Genesis chapter 3. As Eve is tempted and Adam sits there passively listening, And the enemy begins to put doubt in what? God's Word. Did God really say? He said, we're going to die. Oh, no, no, no. You're not going to die. Oh, so God's wrong? No, it's worse. He's lying to you. Here's what He knows. You're going to be like Him. Now that sounds attractive. The truth is, men violently so. Some emotionally. Some quite tangibly as we're seeing in different parts of the world. Violently reject God's Son because they desperately want to be God. They want to rule their lives. They want to be independent believing that they actually can be. The first verses of Hebrews are... um, very stark. They remind us of this whole process of rejection of prophets. And it says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, at many times and in many ways, for those of you who don't believe, this is one of your times and one of your ways. But God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He created the world, In this verse right here, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And if Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God, Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, His death is the most horrible thing mankind could have ever and will ever do. If Jesus truly is the Son of God, His death is more than just tragic or sad. It is defiant and rebellious and worthy of death. If He's just a teacher, that's sad. Some kind of martyr that served well. That's sad. But if he is the Son of God who came with the words of life, nothing compares. When Jesus turns the parable and the conversation back to the Pharisees, he asks them, What do you think should be done to these guys? What do you think should be done for rejecting the Son? It's interesting how they respond. I'm not sure we, uh, when, if they knew that Jesus was talking about their own sin, they would respond this way. And I'm not convinced we, when talking about our own sin, respond this way either. What does that mean? We don't think we're that bad. What do they say? Oh, these wretches! They should not just die. They should have a miserable death! Head first into a chipper. Pull their nails out first. Whatever. Something bad. Feed them feet first to a shark. Whatever your bad is, right? A miserable death. It's that bad. Heck, I would crucify them. Oh. That's about as bad as it can get. They rightly declare their own judgment. 
These guys deserve to die. Yes. We all deserve to die for those who rejected Christ. Because you're rejecting the one who has given you everything, even the breath that you breathe. He's protected you from that which you don't even know. Any blessing you have is from the Lord. All good things are from Him. So he says it to him, and this right here, verses 42 to 44, as a Jew is reading the book of Matthew, they would go, oh my goodness. What does he say? You have rejected the most important stone, the cornerstone. They would think the temple, they would think the building that identifies the heart of their religion and their faith. Jesus says, you have sacrificed the temple and worshipped at the temple and fulfilled all the laws of the temple and you've left out the most important part. You've got all the routines down. But the structure of the entire building is dependent upon this one stone that tells you the positions of all other stones. And if you get that stone off or wrong or thrown out altogether, your building will be crooked. Your worship will be perverse and empty and you will not be worshiping the one true God. It says you've rejected the very one to which everything that you've been doing has pointed to. And so I would say to any of us that any form of spirituality that is not founded on Jesus Christ, is not empowered by Jesus or shaped by Jesus is wicked no matter how Christian or religious it claims to be. If you rejected the most important stone. Then he goes further to say stark words. Therefore, I tell you. He's not talking about the story anymore. It's like, I tell you guys, you've lost the kingdom. It's been taken away from you and given to another. It's been given to this new mysterious nation that will be made of Jews and Gentiles. The redemptive plan of God has now become localized around a new and fruitful people. We have to be careful because we recognize, hopefully, that the tenants were not guilty of being fruitless. That wasn't the problem. In fact, the tenants had a very fruitful vineyard. The question wasn't the fruit as much as the quality of it, or dare I say, the motivation behind producing it at all. The tenants were guilty of working for their own glory. This new nation will produce a new kind of fruit. We'll explain that. He says, you've rejected, you have lost, and you have fallen. And I think he has a word where he talks about the stone. The one who falls on the stone is broken, and the one who the stone falls on. What is it talking about? Two people. And they're both represented in here. The religious and the irreligious. Jesus says that the religious, those who got the routines down, those who sing praises to God and are moral and everything that the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests claim to have been, to the religious He says, look, you stumble over Jesus' humiliation. He's not who you thought He was. He's a suffering servant, not a conquering king in the sense that you think. He says, if you stumble over Jesus' humiliation, you will be broken when He is glorified. But then... Referencing a prophecy from Daniel chapter 2, of which I won't go into, he has a word for the irreligious. And he says, the irreligious who reject Jesus will be crushed into powder. And any kingdoms they have built will experience the same. In other words, unbelievers and false believers face the same fate for rejecting Jesus. Unbelievers and false believers, those who reject Jesus by being really bad, and those who reject Jesus by trying to be really good, they experience the same fate. And this mysterious nation that God gives His kingdom over, that He centers His kingdom in, I believe is the church. 
The rejection by one people results in the reconciliation of many. But again, the Gospel reminds us that the church is not full of a bunch of better people. We're not the good tenants who work harder or present better fruit than the wicked tenants. Here's a news flash for everyone who thinks really highly of themselves. We are equally wicked. We are selfish. We are ungrateful. We are defiant. We would have killed Jesus. But through the sin of God's own people, God is bigger. And He orchestrates salvation to a bunch of sinners. This is, I think, why Paul warns us in Romans 11 in speaking about the rejection by the Jewish people. It says, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness to you. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power. God has the power to graft them in again. couple things to know. God did not send His Son to His death in order to merely reform the attitudes of workers. He sent His Son to die in order to completely transform our hearts. And when Christ saves us through the death of Jesus Christ and belief in that, God changes from boss and master to And I change from being just a worker trying to produce fruit to a family member, a son, an heir. God didn't send His Son in order to help us become better farmers. Check this out. He sent His Son to die so that He could produce all the fruit that He rightly requires of us. So farming now is not necessarily in the sense that we typically mean to produce new fruit as much as it is to simply reveal the fruit that Christ has produced in us. It's not our fruit! That's good news. Like Israel, we are planted by God through the death of Jesus. We are fenced in by God through the love of Jesus. We are blessed by God through the grace of Jesus. We are protected by God through the forgiveness of Jesus. We are made fruitful. We are made fruitful by and through the power of Jesus. The Gospel empowers us to be a completely different kind of farmer. Here's what I mean. We farm with a completely different motivation. This is how the Gospel changes everything. Jesus farms it all! Right? Not Jesus paid it all. I want a new song. Jesus farmed it all. Right? Think about that image. Paid it all. That is true. Farm it all means it's a fruitful harvest. And he's like, here you go! I don't work for fear or out of fear of not making enough fruit or losing my job. I work out of delight like a child who knows that his father loves everything he does. That's totally different. I go from working for my debt to working out of delight. There's a verse that I want you to to sit on in John chapter 6, verse 27, about work. Like, what is the work God requires of me? What do I need to do? He tells us. But it's going to freak you out in a good way. John chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, Do not work. 
for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, right? This is what we say. Okay, 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 okay. What do we got to do then? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Like, that sounds like the big work. I don't want to deal with this, like, earthly work. Give me the big work. What's the godly work? What's the work that's going to save me? What is it? Here's what he says. Jesus answered them. This is the work of God. Ready? Ready for it? Ready for it? That you believe in him whom he has sent. What? That's it? Yeah, just believe. Just believe. We farm with a different motivation. And we farm with a different means, right? Jesus didn't just farm at all. He keeps farming and He farms with me. Well, I should actually say, I farm with Him. We are saved, Ephesians 2 says, by grace through faith. And then we are called to walk in the works that Jesus has already prepared beforehand in verse 10. That sounds like He's always done the work. Yeah! Isn't that rad? I go from working more, I need to work more, I need to do more, to trusting more in the work that He's already done. And here's the big secret, right? That causes you to work more. Like you want to work. Like if you start with that, I'm just going to work harder! I'm going to be gooder! Like whatever it is. You know what that ends up in? One, you realize your work really stinks and you're a horrible farmer and you'll despair. I'm sorry. I got like one pair to offer you, Lord. Or you'd be like, look at my harvest, Lord. All I've done. And you'll really be thinking about Jesus at that moment. You'll be thinking about yourself in pride. We work with a different means. We work not, I should say, our work is less about our work and more about trusting His. I really um, struggle often with preaching. And the reason why, here's a little insight into me. Preaching's a lot of pressure. Not from you or anybody else from my own flesh. Because as a preacher, you feel like, oh, I better say something pretty awesome, otherwise people are going to leave. And then if someone visits and they don't come back, no, if you don't come back and you're visiting, that's okay, right? We, we love you and find a better church. But... You have that, that fear, like someone shows up and then they don't show up the next week. You're like, oh, sermon must have stunk, right? So like that's, and then you just like, you like want to take a passage, you're like, I'm just going to say this definitive statement on this passage that's been preached for 2,000 years, and, but I'm going to say something amazing, right? And you, this, this is, it's harsh pressure and, and work, it's ugly. So I was struggling with this, and my good friend Aaron Ortiz, he prayed with me, and he just reminded me of this. Matthew chapter 11. And I had pre- the funny thing is I had preached this like probably two months before this. And he's like, haven't you read Matthew 11? I'm like, yeah, I think I preached a sermon on that. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know why his yoke is so easy and his burden is light? Because he's doing all the heavy lifting. I'm yoked to Jesus, and I'm like the little pathetic cow. like, and he's like, come on, let's go. I'm just being dragged. I'm like a little thing in the dirt just making a trough for seeds, right? And he's like doing it. I'm yoked to Jesus. It's not me. It's him. So anything he asks me to do, I'm like, yeah, Jesus, you better get that done because I, I am horrible at farming. Like, don't worry. Hold on. Here we go. <sighs> different means. And lastly, a different model. We farm with a different model. Jesus farms through me. See, the more that I behold the amazing work that He has already done for me, the more I begin to look like Him in my work. I stop striving to be fruitful. And I just focus on being faithful. He takes care of the fruit. I don't worry about the fruit. But we have a different fruit we want to produce. And I'm going to read a passage 
out of 1 Peter to reflect what the whole point of it is. What's the best fruit we can produce? Because if I were to ask you that question, what's the best fruit? Something like, oh, morals, like we're just good, or service to people, whatever. You have your thing, you think, like, this is the best fruit we can produce. 1 Peter 2 says it this way. The verse right before this, he said, almost the phrase, because of the good news, starting with the gospel, as a gospel motivation, he says this, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, and like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word as they were destined to do. Here it comes. But you, this nation, right? You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That, okay, English teacher, that. Okay? Former English teacher. He's going to tell us all these things you are so you can do this. So you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's... You can do lots of good works and produce all kinds of fruit and make it amazing. No. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. The best fruit, the greatest fruit, the most effective fruit we could ever produce are clear proclamations of the awesomeness of the one true farmer, Jesus. He is the one who is gracious. He is loving. He is forgiving. He is merciful. He asks you to do nothing but to believe He is the one who has already done everything. We are not farming to produce new fruit. We are revealing the fruits that Jesus has already produced in and for us. Period. I'll close with this. God calls us to repent and believe and live out who Jesus says you are by grace through faith for His glory and for our joy. And if you want to know if you're doing that, here's your test. When someone asks you, how's your walk? We'll keep it in the context. How's your garden? How are you farming? How's your relationship with the Lord? When you think about it, where does your brain go? And if your first thought is what you have done or what you have not done, you're off gospel. Because when someone asks you, how's your relationship with the Lord? You think about Jesus. Because Jesus did everything. Jesus has a perfect relationship with the Lord. And so do you when you trust in His work and stop depending upon your own. A new kind of farmer. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You for Your grace. You have given us everything. And we have contributed nothing. And yet, Father, You've loved us. and You've brought us into Your family. And by grace, You have made us new. And You have powered us to, to love You and to live for You with a completely different motivation, Lord. Not out of debt, but out of delight. Father, You have given us a new means by which to work. It's not dependent upon our power anymore. We're weak. But You are strong. And Father, You have given us, you've given us hope. 
that we can actually accomplish something for you by focusing less on what we produce and more on declaring you for what you have already done. So I pray we'll be a people, Father, but when we think about a relationship with you, that our minds do not go to how good or bad our farming has been, but it goes directly to how perfect Jesus is. And we pray that you will look to him when you think about us and that we will grow deeper in our faith and trusting the work that's already been done on our behalf. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you would stand, we're going to take communion. And that was my opportunity to preach the gospel, and here's yours. This is the Lord's table. Now, the night he was betrayed, he broke bread and he distributed wine. He said, this is the new covenant. And it is a celebration that we have a new life in Christ. That we are not defined by what we've done or have not done, by who we were or, or what we may have succeeded and achieved or what we never achieved. We are identified and defined by what Jesus has done. We have a new life. And we have a renewed life. The reality is, we get dirty. And we fail often. And Jesus says, I know. I forgive. And forgive. And forgive. And forgive. And cleanse. And empower. And that we have a shared life. This is, this is a table for the family of God. If you're not a believer, this is not for you. But if you are a believer, you're part of a family. Family that extends way beyond these walls. But it's a family all share one thing in common, though we're different than everyone else. That is our belief that Jesus Christ is the one who gives our identity. And it's a celebration of eternal life that someday we won't come to a table constantly. We'll be sitting at a table with the Lord, drinking of the new wine and feasting with Him, fully restored, not worrying anymore about our brokenness or how good or bad our farming is, but going, that was awesome. And this is going to be awesome. So let's sing for the joy of being saved by Jesus Christ.